Hey, I want you to resist the urge to open to 1 Corinthians and instead open to Isaiah chapter 38. <laughs> I think that's self-explanatory. There's a portion of scripture I've been, um, I don't want to use the word meditating because that sounds weird. Don't you agree that sounds weird? I mean, Christians can meditate, but meditation always reminds me of people with their fingers like this and stuff. So, so I've been thinking about and mulling over. How's that? We mull over. We're mullers. I've been mulling over this scripture for a while. And uh, we're going to look at something here in 38 and 39. I believe it'll advance. We, we talk a lot about uh, suffering and how the Bible meets that as a subject, and this will advance our thinking uh, in that area. Uh, anyway, you know, I don't make a, a big thing like this is a, some kind of prophetic word, but I, I do think the Lord put it on my heart, so we'll see if that's true or not. So I want you to open to Isaiah chapter 38, and the topic we're going to find there, Hezekiah is healed and granted an additional 15 years to live, leading to the birth of wicked Manasseh who is carried off captive to Assyria. The title of our message, and when I die, and when I'm dead, dead and gone, there'll be one child born to be carried off. Who recognizes that, anybody? A handful, blood, sweat, and tears, David Clayton Thomas, perfect title. If you don't recognize that, you weren't alive in the 70s. Let's pray. Father, thanks for our morning. It's your word, Lord, and and we've come to it uh, to feast. And I pray that you would fill us, Lord, uh, with uh, the wonder of your love and with the knowledge of your grace. We thank you in Jesus' name and all who agreed said, amen. Historians call it history's favorite guessing game. They ask this question, what if JFK had lived? What would the world have been like if JFK had not been killed? What if he had lived a long life and served a second term and led America through the heart of the turbulent 1960s? One historian reviewed some theories and he said, if we are to believe these speculative alternate histories, the dominoes from his assassination careen in every which way. In some of these visions, a world with John Kennedy is a world without hippies, with a peaceful U.S.-Cuba relationship, with less war or more war, or a world with an aging, divorced, wheelchair-bound elder statesman with all his flaws exposed. Either that or a nuclear holocaust. Who really knows? Well, there is an amazing true account in the Old Testament of a king who did live after he was supposed to die. In his case, we can see exactly how it affected him and his nation. I'm talking, of course, about King Hezekiah of Judah. The bare bones outline of the story are these. The Lord sent the prophet Isaiah to tell Hezekiah that he was going to die from the sickness that he had contracted. From his deathbed, Hezekiah fervently prayed for healing. God heard his prayer and sent Isaiah back to tell Hezekiah he would indeed recover and live an additional 15 years. Not only is it a must devotional read for anyone who is ill, but there are deep theological truths to be pondered. Divine healing is one, obviously, but we also see effective prayer, God's sovereignty working with man's free will, God's foreknowledge and foreordination, and God's providence. There's a miracle thrown in too, just for good measure. Hezekiah's healing and its results are told in a couple of different places in Scripture. We're going to look at the account as remembered and recorded by the prophet who was involved directly, Isaiah. It's in chapters 38 and 39. And I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, you rejoice with Hezekiah in his healing. And number two, you rethink with Isaiah about the healing. And so let's look at chapter 38 first. A little backstory, always helpful. 
Hezekiah reigned 29 years from 726 to 697 BC. He's remembered as one of the good and godly kings. He set about to abolish idolatry from the kingdom, and among other things, he destroyed the brazen serpent from Israel's exodus to Egypt. Uh, Moses had made that. Uh, it became a notable uh, example of the cross and how we're to look at Jesus. Well, it was preserved, and now they were using it as an idol. It had been set up in Jerusalem. During his reign, the kingdom of Judah was in subjection to the powerful Assyrian Empire. On the death of Sargon and the accession of his son Sennacherib to the throne of Assyria, Hezekiah refused to pay tribute. Instead, he rebelled against the king of Assyria and served him not. He entered into an alliance with Egypt against Assyria. It was a bad idea. This led to the invasion of Judah by Sennacherib, who took 40 cities and besieged Jerusalem. Hezekiah yielded to the demands of the Assyrian king and agreed to start paying him tribute again. Sennacherib came a second time and besieged Jerusalem, intent on destroying it. Hezekiah prayed to God, and that night the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000 men. The remaining Assyrians left, obviously defeated. That should be enough for us to get into the text without too many questions about where we're at. And so verse 1 of Isaiah 38, In those days Hezekiah was sick and near death, and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. In those days, is just before the second siege of Jerusalem, Hezekiah was sick and near death at what seemed the worst possible time for the nation. Besides that, he was only about 39 years old, a young man for that time. Why me? Why now? Those questions are inevitable if you get sick, and especially if the illness is life-threatening. I don't know if you've realized it yet, but we live in a world overflowing with loss and suffering and death. It causes people to rail against God, asking why he seems either unwilling or unable to help us. And I've, uh, you know this by now, I'm convinced this is the biggest stumbling block people have about God. You see this in movies and in television and just in your everyday life, people bring up this topic and no one ever seems to answer it or even suggest they have an answer. It's like wow, it's a mystery, and, and, and people feel like that silence justifies their position that they don't need to worry about God. By the way, scholars call the study of these questions theodicy, T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y, meaning the attempt to answer the question of why a good God permits the manifestation of evil, thus resolving the issue of the problem of evil. So, it's, uh, so how do we respond? What is our theodicy? Well, God created our parents, Adam and Eve, in his own image, meaning they had genuine free will to obey or disobey him. There are things God can't do. He can't create a being who freely loves him without giving that being free will. And he can't create someone in his own image without giving that someone free will. They chose to disobey God, bringing upon their descendants the consequence God had warned them about, death, and all the suffering and loss that goes with death. God promised to come as a man into the world, Mankind had ruined to undo the damage by taking our place in death. Jesus was that God-man, and he has made a way for mankind to be redeemed and regenerated and for creation to be restored. The Bible tells that story from its inglorious beginning to its glorious end. Probably took me two and a half or three minutes to say that. And so some version of that could easily be shared. Now, whether people are receptive to it or whether they would brush it off, 
But we do have answers to this most fundamental question. It doesn't catch us unaware. Uh, we're, we're ready to give an answer. God has done something, something costly and wonderful. The only valid question to ask now is, what is God waiting for now that he solved the problem? The Apostle Peter answers it when he says, the Lord is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's 2 Peter 3, 9, as you know. He's waiting for more people to hear the gospel, to be saved and spared from eternal conscious torment in the lake of fire. And so a good one-word answer to why is God waiting is just long-suffering. In fact, Peter in another place says, God's long-suffering waits, and he's waiting for people to get saved because the eternal consequence is far more deadly than the consequences we see on our earth today. Suffering is tremendous, don't get me wrong. Shootings, uh, civil wars, you know, all these kinds of things that are going on around the world. But we're talking about eternal conscious torment in the lake of fire. And so the Lord is waiting as long as it merits waiting to see who will get saved. Now the Lord sent Hez uh, Isaiah to Hezekiah, tell him he was going to die from his illness. This was his deathbed. And so Hezekiah did what we would do. He prayed. Then Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Remember now, O Lord, I pray how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. We'll see more of his prayer in a moment, quite a bit more. We immediately think Hezekiah ought not to remind the Lord how deserving he is of healing. However, he was praying under the old covenant. God did promise reward, even long life, for faithful obedience. Everything Hezekiah said about himself was true. It was, in fact, a good Old Testament prayer. He was a good and godly king, and uh, God, in his word, had uh, promised long life and blessing for that. Hezekiah's prayer is not a good model for us. In the church age in which we live, we don't list our good works and expect material and physical blessing instead of buffeting. Uh, we have spiritual blessings. God's old covenant saints knew that there was life after death, but they had little information. There's no place in Hezekiah's Bible that described where he was going. Drop down to verse 9 and you'll see what I mean. This is the writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. I said, in the prime of my life, I shall go to the gates of Sheol. I am deprived of the remainder of my years. I said, I shall not see Yah, the Lord, in the land of the living. I shall observe man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My lifespan is gone, taken from me like a shepherd's tent. I have cut off my life like a weaver. He cuts me off from the loom. From day until night, you make an end of me. I have considered until morning, like a lion, so he breaks all my bones. From day until night, you make an end of me. Like a crane or a swallow, I chattered. I mourned like a dove. My eyes fail from looking upward. O oh Lord, I am oppressed. Undertake for me. This is how the godly regarded death under the old covenant. Their revelation of the afterlife was limited. We read the Old Testament through, as many of you are doing on a one-year Bible program. Very little talk about heaven or the afterlife or exactly what happens when you die. But that's not true of us. We have a full revelation of life after death. For the believer in Christ to be absent from the body in death is to be immediately present with the Lord in heaven. 
And some of us will never die, the Bible says, because Jesus is coming for his church. And when he does, those of us who are alive and remain will be raptured. And so we have a much different appreciation of death. Death is no longer an enemy. It's not uh, something to be feared. There's no, nothing unknown about it as far as the revelation goes. Now, while I would never suggest you not weep, you need not weep bitterly. Our attitude toward death ought to be framed by these words of the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell, for I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. And so Paul's attitude about death was, I'm ready to die because I will be absent from my body and present with the Lord. And I'd actually rather do that. And if you were Paul, uh, living the life of the first century missionary, you'd probably rather die too. In fact, every day you thought you were going to die, whether it was from a shipwreck or a stoning or a scourging or uh, being held up by robbers or thrown into a dungeon, those kinds of things that accompanied his ministry. But Paul said, if the Lord doesn't take me, uh, then I will continue to serve him. And so that, that's my life. One way or the other, I serve the Lord. And so uh, Paul was realistic. He told the Thessalonians that not to weep as those who had no hope. Uh, so he wasn't without emotion. In fact, I'm uh, thinking about a series called Paul's Emoticons because Paul has, Paul has a lot of different emotions that people don't get. I, we're studying through 1 Corinthians uh, you know, when I'm not doing things like this. And um, we see that Paul last week said he was in fear and trembling. This is the same guy who wrote for us, be anxious for nothing. And yet he admits that in his own walk, he had fear and trembling. So uh, Paul had a lot of emotions that we have. I think we think of him as, as just this even-keeled guy that nothing ever bothered him. But he said himself that the care of the church has weighed on him. And, uh, you know, even though Peter would say, cast your care on the Lord because he cares for you, these guys had emotions like we do. And so uh, hopefully we'll get to that someday. Verse 4, and the word of the Lord came to Isaiah saying, go and tell Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. Surely I will add to your days 15 years. God told Hezekiah he was going to die not just eventually, but from this illness and soon. Now he tells him he's not going to die. He'll have 15 more years to live. We get an incredible insight into the doctrines of God's foreknowledge and his foreordination. God's foreknowledge is defined as God's knowledge of the entire course of events, which are future from the human point of view. In other words, God knows the future. God's foreordination is defined as being determined in advance especially the doctrine usually associated with Calvinism, that God has foreordained every event throughout eternity, including the final salvation of mankind. And so for a particular branch of Reformed theology, foreknowledge and foreordination are the same thing. In other words, God only knows what's going to happen because he makes it happen. He determines that it will happen. Some argue that, but uh, is that true? Well, that's clearly not true in this case. God foreknew Hezekiah's imminent death, but responding to prayer, he foreknew a different time of death. God remained sovereign while Hezekiah exercised free will. I know this blows some people's minds because they, they want to try and figure out how that works. 
I was thinking about this again this morning. We read the Word of God. It teaches us. It tells us things about the nature and character of God. It doesn't always explain exactly how things work together. But looking at this passage of Scripture from a non-theological point of view, you get the impression that God foreknew that Hezekiah was going to die, and then in answer to prayer, he foreknew something else. He had not determined that Hezekiah was going to die, and he wasn't playing around with Hezekiah. He didn't say, hey, Isaiah, go tell, Hezekiah, go tell Hezekiah he's going to die, but really he's not going to. I just want to see him squirm a little bit. It was genuine. He answered prayer, and really... And there's other cases like this in the Bible, by the way, as well. This isn't the sole example that I could give. There are times when God says something's going to happen, and then whether through prayer or other circumstances, it happens differently. God remains God because he's sovereign, and man has free will. By the way, if everything is predetermined, why would you pray at all? Why would you pray at all about anything? You, you, everything if everything's predetermined, you think, well, that's... That was determined, and that was determined, and that was determined. I, I could talk to God and have a relationship with him, but there's no need praying about anything. God answered Hezekiah's prayer for healing. We know he can still do that. So why is it that if we're honest, the vast majority of the time, we're not healed when we pray for it? Well, as wonderful as the new covenant is, under it, we are called upon to suffer in order to show the world the grace of God at work. As I mentioned before, our benefits and blessings are mostly spiritual. Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Apostle Paul said, now I have joy in my pain because of you, and in my flesh I undergo whatever is still needed to make the sorrows of Christ complete for the salvation of his body, the church. Albert Barnes explains this saying, Paul felt that it was an object to be earnestly desired to be made in all respects just like Christ, and that in his present circumstances, he was fast filling up that which was lacking so that he would have a more complete resemblance to him. You can be healed in response to prayer. More likely, God is going to tell you what he told the Apostle Paul when he prayed for healing. You remember this in 2 Corinthians 12, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. For our part, we respond as Paul did. He said, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest upon me. And so we pray differently than these Old Testament saints. Uh, certainly we can pray for healing, uh, but we expect spiritual blessing. Uh, God has promised that. And so while we're waiting for healing or thinking that God might heal because he hasn't told us he's not going to, what we really need to pray for is sustaining grace, to recognize the grace of God that sustains us through these things and for the Lord to use us in remarkable ways so that in our weakness, he can be made strong. And so um, it's, it's different. And so a lot of times we fall into an Old Testament mentality. We say, well, Lord, I'm such a good person, or this person is such a good person, such a wonderful person. How can you do that? And, and the Lord says, this is not the dispensation where I bless you materially and physically in, in, in terms of your obedience. This is a time in which I'm going to see your weakness be a powerful thing in the lives of others. And then verse 6, I will deliver you in this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. This is a reference to that second siege I mentioned in which the angel fought for them. Earlier, Hezekiah had sought help from Egypt. This time, help would come only from the Lord. We talked about this last time in 1 Corinthians 
reliance and not alliance with the world. Kudos to Hezekiah for modeling this important principle. He must have seemed foolish, surrounded by the world ruling empire, the Assyrians. And if you read the account, they were saying some awful things to the uh, Israelis that were on the walls in their own language to try to tear down their morale. And Isaiah, or Hezekiah rather, he hung in there and he believed that the Lord would save them. Uh, he'd seen the disaster his alliance with Egypt had been and so he just waited on the Lord. And overnight that situation was decided when the angel destroyed the Assyrian army. Verse seven. This is the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing which he has spoken. Behold, I will bring the shadow on the sundial, which has gone down with the sun on the sundial of Ahaz, 10 degrees backward. So the sun returned 10 degrees on the dial by which it had gone down. As if the word of the Lord wasn't enough, God did a miracle. David Guzik wrote, by bringing the shadow of the sundial moved backwards, it gave more time in a day, just as God gave Hezekiah more time. And so the Lord did this miracle and says, I'll show you how I can make more time in a day, and that'll show you that I can make more time in your life. And so a miracle. Uh, we have a miracle working God. Uh, that's one thing that carries over into the New Testament. We believe that God can still do miracles. Uh, they seem few and far between in our experience, although there are parts of the world where the reports would be otherwise, where God is doing incredible miracles. I don't know that it's because we're less spiritual. Uh, I just think we are in a different situation. God is using us as stewards of the gospel in ways that make the most sense. And I will say this, even when Jesus was alive performing amazing miracles and doing so many works that the, all the books in the world couldn't hold them, uh, in the end, he was only being followed by a few people. The miracles didn't really help. When he raised Lazarus from the dead, his friend Lazarus, the religious leaders, instead of getting excited about that, they looked for a way that they could put both of them to death, both Lazarus and Jesus. And so it's, it's just not true that a miracle brings people to faith. The remaining verses are Hezekiah's response to the news that he would live 15 more years. So drop back down to verse 15. What shall I say? He has both spoken to me and he has himself done it. I shall walk carefully all my years in the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these things is the life of my spirit, so you will restore me and make me live. Indeed, it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness, but you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. Sheol cannot thank you, death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your truth. The living, the living man, he shall praise you as I do this day. The father shall make known your truth to the children. The Lord was ready to save me. Therefore, we will sing my songs with stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of the Lord. Two things to note in Hezekiah's thanksgiving. In verse 17, when he said that it was for his own peace, he was acknowledging that this was a selfish request that didn't include what might be best for his nation. He was, he's honest, he's saying, hey, I prayed because I was only concerned about myself, and, and that's all that I was looking at. And then in verse 19, secondly, he promised to teach his children. Uh, he had ended up with two sons, neither of them had been born yet, and uh, this is going to be a real failure in his life. And so his rejoicing is genuine, and we rejoice with him, but a couple of things stand out uh, to think about. 
Verse 21, now Isaiah had said, let them take a lump of figs and apply it as a poultice on the boil and he shall recover. Uh, there's all kinds of fun stuff on the internet. If there's anything wrong with you that you can look up and, and I think sometimes people do that just to mess with you. I had a friend one time, he got some good traction with this. He, um, he would tell the kids at school who had cars, he'd say, hey, if you want your window to never fog up, uh, get cut a potato in half and rub the potato all over the inside of your window. You know how hard it is to get potato off your window? It'll never fog up because you'll have to throw that windshield away and stuff. So some of this stuff on, and I've tried some of the stuff on, on the internet, and it's a wonder I'm still alive, but uh, this wasn't really the solution. Uh, this was a way of showing obedience to God and trusting him to heal, even though the method made no sense. Reminds me of Naaman when he went to be healed of leprosy. And uh, Elijah says to him, just go dip seven times in the Jordan River. And he's like, there's cleaner water where I come from. It didn't really have any relationship to the leprosy. It's just something he had to do. And so this is a miracle. It's not, uh, I don't want you to go home and get a bunch of figs and put them on your acne and think it's going to help. But not, not, not true. And Hezekiah said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? We read about the sundial sign earlier, lots of signs under the old covenant bolstering the faith of God's saints. Not so much today, but that's okay. We have the spiritual resources that these guys would be amazed with, the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit, as well as the complete revelation of God's word. It's everything we need for life and for godliness. We lack no good thing. So far, so good, but that's about to change in chapter 39 as we rethink with Isaiah about the healing. Speaking of history and hypothetical questions, it's sometimes asked, if you could, would you travel back in time and kill baby Hitler? This pops up in the Avengers Endgame when Rhodey suggests they travel back in time and kill baby Thanos. I like Ben Shapiro's brief but poignant answer. The truth is no pro-life person would kill baby Hitler because baby Hitler was a baby. Uh, and so it's, it's an interesting uh, question. This is gonna become relevant in a moment because Hezekiah is going to father Manasseh, and that turns out to be not so good for the nation. First, Hezekiah does something stupid on his own. Verse, nine, uh, verse 1 of chapter 39, at that time, Merodach Baladin, son of Baladin, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah was pleased with them and showed them the house of his treasures, the silver and gold, the spices, the spices rather, and precious ointment, and all his armory all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. What is it that Dana Carvey always used to say when imitating George H.W. Bush? Wouldn't be prudent. Remember that? Wouldn't be prudent. Why, well, read my lips. Hezekiah's actions definitely were not prudent. He took Babylonians into the temple and showed them his wealth. But this is a good meditation for us, not his true wealth. The wealth of the temple was God. The temple was where he graciously condescended to meet with them. It was, it was ornamentation is all. And so Hezekiah is showing them the gold and the silver and all these beautiful things, and there's no indication that, that he really gave any glory to God. Uh, he, he was just, you know, hey, I'm a king, and these guys are representatives of the king of Babylon, and so we just keep it on that level. When he had every opportunity to say, hey, you see all this? This is all a pile of dung compared to what God can do. Uh, and so keep that in mind. Verse 3, 
Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, what did these men say and from where did they come to you? So Hezekiah said, well, they came to me from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, what have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, they've seen all that is in my house. There's nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. Hezekiah had come through adversity, but prosperity would be his immediate downfall. We tend to forget how difficult it is to serve God when we are prospering. Jesus said it was easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And he meant a real camel and a real sewing needle. The history of Israel in their promised land is that whenever they prospered, spiritual apathy set in, leading to apostasy and God's discipline. When you're doing all right, life is pretty good, that's when you are the most vulnerable to attack. Prosperity is dangerous to the spiritual life because we tend to let down our guard. And as much as we understand we're under the new covenant and not the old, people still believe that if things are going all right, then God is uh, pleased with you and he's uh, keeping you in that position when in fact, uh, prosperity is something that'll trip you up. Verse five, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came in three waves, ultimately leaving Jerusalem, its walls, and the first temple as smoking ruins. The Jews endured a 70-year captivity as a discipline. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he said, at least there will be peace and truth in my days. Wow. Did you catch that? Babylon's coming to ruin us? Great. Not going to happen until I'm dead and gone. Hezekiah has no remorse and he doesn't repent. In fact, follow me here, he becomes a Calvinist. <laughs> Earlier, he had prayed to be healed, believing that even though God foreknew his death, it could definitely be changed because it was not foreordained. He said, Lord, you told me I'm going to die, but I know that you can change that edict. You foreknow my death, but you haven't foreordained it. Now, he resigns himself to thinking that since God has foreordained the Babylonian invasion, what can we do about that? I'm just happy it's not going to happen in my time. You guys have to deal with that because there's no, no use praying about that because God said it was going to happen. And so, you know what? You can't have it both ways. You have to decide. By the way, the fact that foreknowledge is not always because something is foreordained does not mean God is ever caught off guard. He accomplishes his will through providence, keeping his plan on track. And so there can be adjustments, but ultimately we're going to get to Revelation chapter 21 and 22. One result of Hezekiah's additional years was the birth of a son, Manasseh. Let me read this passage from 2 Chronicles 33. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. He rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down. He raised up altars for the Baals and made wooden images. He worshiped all the host of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem shall my name be forever. He built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Also, he caused his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. That means he uh, sacrificed his sons as uh, living sacrifices. 
Um, he practiced soothsaying, he used witchcraft and sorcery, sorcery and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image, the idol, which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers, only if they are careful to do all that I have commanded them, according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinances. So Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. So if you could, would you go back in time and kill baby Manasseh? Well, no, of course not. But his birth after Hezekiah was healed led to incredible suffering. In fact, Jeremiah wrote, I, Yahweh, will hand them over to trouble to all the kingdoms of the earth because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem. And so Manasseh played a big role in the judgment that God decreed against Judah and their captivity in Babylon. It does seem that it would have been better if Manasseh was never born. Dr. J. Vernon McGee and his wife suffered the death of their firstborn child. He eventually wrote a long tract about it, some of his points. A brief life is not an incomplete life. You can be assured that all is well with your child. Heaven should be more real to you, and you will see your little one someday. But he also speculated about what if the child had lived, and he writes, God knew what was in the future for your child. Perhaps there would have been a life of illness, a disfiguring accident or brain damage, lingering incurable disease. God knew all of this, and I am confident that he has given you the better part. You can be certain about your child's future now, you should not be certain, or you could not be certain, rather, if your little one were alive. Have you ever used the expression or heard the expression, I'm glad so-and-so died before he could see this? I've said that. We probably all have said that because you recognize something is so terrible that it would have broken grandpa's heart or grandma's heart or mom or dad's heart. And, and it is a good thing that they didn't have to endure that kind of suffering. And, and so that's what McGee is talking about. He says sometimes... Um, Sometimes what you pray for isn't really a good thing. And we see that with Manasseh. Um, now, I do need to remind you that both Hezekiah and Manasseh returned to the Lord before they died. Second Chronicles 32 says Hezekiah humbled himself. Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles 33 says Manasseh was in affliction, but he implored God uh, and the Lord uh, humbled himself greatly before the God of his father and prayed to him and he received his entreaty, heard his supplication and brought him back to Jerusalem from captivity in Assyria. And so pray for healing or for deliverance, but remember you cannot know what the future holds, you can only know who holds the future. We should never assume healing or deliverance is better than suffering or death. Maybe from our perspective it seems that way. What could not be glorious about Hezekiah being healed? That's amazing, the sun goes back, um, he ends up being the king that oversees the victory in the greatest battle never fought when the angel comes in and destroys the Assyrian army. But he also goes on to do some incredibly stupid things for the nation because his prayer was effectively uh, selfish. He says that. I prayed a selfish prayer. And until you're sure that your prayer is not selfish, that it's selfless, you better hold it to yourself because God just might answer it. And um, I think that's what he's showing us here is that he knows best. When suffering is your lot in life, know by experience that God's grace is sufficient for you, that his strength is made perfect in weakness. 
gladly boast in your infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon you. Take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches, in needs and in persecution, in your distresses for Jesus' sake. For when you are weak, then you are strong.